but I don't I really don't have any regrets I really don't I've I've lived exactly how I've wanted to I've tried my hardest every single time I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won or but I really gave it my all so that for me is enough Hi everyone, welcome back to The Body Surf. I'm James. I'm Jonathan. Thank you to everybody who reached out with well wishes for Vince. Today marks two weeks of crate rest he for him. Is, uh, he's languishing in his crate, extremely bored. The drugs have taken hold and he feels great. Or at least <laughs> thinks he feels great. He's bored in the crate in the crate board. <laughs> I feel like we are at a, a strange place that we didn't expect to be at one year out in this pandemic mm -hmm. whereby here in canada we are staring down the barrel of an extended worst stretch yet which yeah, has been a yeah. bit much for us to deal with you know recently. the highest number of patients in the icu in this province in the history of the whole pandemic highest number of cases per day just a total failure of public health policy it's frustrating to watch other countries other states open up and get closer to normal while we're still kind of stuck in the worst of it. You're really only talking about the United States. Because yeah. Because this is, this the is... United States behaved like real bad kids for the whole year. Government was an absolute shit show. And now the vaccine rollout is going amazingly well, it appears. Well, when you have control of that much of the production, this mm. is what happens. Because they still have a large percentage of the population that will not take the vaccine. Right. And that's seems to be across the board around the world. Vaccine skepticism has spread across borders, across bodies of water. This is an astonishing thing that we are dealing with globally in the face of the solution being right around the corner, right? Mm. And this does not escape the tennis world. Not only do we have vaccine skeptics in tennis, we have a problem of how to get the vaccine distributed in tennis. We'll talk about that later yeah. on. Let's I don't want to use the the term vaccine skeptics or, you know, I just feel that it gives it this sort of a protected class status that I I really don't want to give it that mm. much credence, you know? The other thing that's super frustrating in terms of sitting with the pandemic and living through the pandemic is that we're quite literally a year on from the onset of the pandemic, the first lockdowns, the George Floyd killing in Minnesota. And here we are again with cases worse than ever and another murder of a black man by police in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. Like, I cannot wrap my head around that. I, I know that police killings of black people in the United States is something that has not stopped. It keeps happening. Just the fact that it's happened in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial for the murder of George Floyd. In Minnesota, again, it's just, it's too much. The man who was murdered in Minnesota this past week was Dante Wright. He was a 20-year-old man shot and killed during a traffic stop by a police officer who supposedly mistook her gun for a taser. A 26-year veteran yeah. of the police force. The excuses just keep getting wilder and wilder. So here we are a year later, and life feels very much the same. I realize that's not the, the happiest way to start this episode, that it's fairly bleak. But I feel like 
this is the reality for a lot of people still in the world. And it's a kind of a disconnect with what I've been seeing on Twitter a lot. A lot of folks in America have gotten their vaccines. Congrats to them. Congrats to many people we know. And we are happy for them. I am genuinely happy and relieved for everybody who has a vaccine. Now is like the FOMO portion of the evening. You know? (laughs) Not just the FOMO portion, but the fact that life is well and truly still shit for the majority of the world. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, there's more bad news where that came from. We'll get to that a bit later. Let's talk about the Volvo Car Open in Charleston, which last year was canceled. Uh, you've gone to this tournament several times now. Twice. It's it's a fan favorite. It's a WTA player favorite. It's actually the oldest WTA women's only tournament. The Althea Gibson Club Court is one of my favorite places to watch tennis. And luckily, well, I can't say luckily for the fans because there were no fans, mm-hmm. general public uh, ticket sales this year, but... We at home got to see a lot more of that court this year because center court is under construction. They're making upgrades. And so the main center court this year was the Althea Gibson club court. Mm. And truly, you did not get a full sense of its glory by watching it on TV. If you ever get the chance to go to that tournament, camp out on Althea Gibson club court. And I will always remember... That's where I met friend of the show, Carol. So shout out to Carol. Oh, again. Yeah. yeah. Carol and her mom. This year's champion was Veronica Kudermitova, who cruised to the title, losing no sets, losing no more than four games in any set played. She was a number 15 seed. Now, she did not have to play any seeded players. Her runner up to the title pretty much did a lot of the heavy lifting on the other side of the draw. No disrespect meant to the champion, of course. Oh, none? <laughs> no. So why'd you mention it, Bill? Uh, I'm just saying, Danka Kovinich, who was the runner-up, she had a, a tough road. And she beat Leila Fernandez, Kvitova, Putintseva, Anjabur, and Paola Badosa had another strong run. She beat the number one seed, Ash Barty, in the quarterfinals, Belinda Bencic. So this, you know, this was a pretty heavy draw. And they weren't names that you expected in the last two in the final but give some respect to Kudermatova she was seeded there was a lot of talk about you know who are these people anyone can win on the WTA they're not just anyone who is Kudermatova then you might be you might be asking she's 23 years old from Russia this was her first WTA title both finalists in fact all four semi-finalists were going for their first career WTA title And uh, with the win, she's up to career-high singles ranking of number 29. The thing that stuck out most to me from this past week in Charleston was the press givings from Sloane Stephens. We've talked on the show urging caution with fans when they're watching her matches recently because Sloane has been through a lot. And this past week, she really gave us insight into the full extent of what she's been through. Yeah, this is unusual for Sloane. And we know that she lost some family members to COVID as was previously reported, but it's really hard to know what's going on inside a player's mind and where their motivation comes from. If indeed they have any motivation to compete in what is such a really difficult time in real life. Chris Otto wrote a piece for Tennis Now 
that was pretty extensive with everything that Sloan had to say. So seek that out and, and read that as kind of, what, an addendum to this, yeah, this segment? Yeah. Sloan said, quote, I had COVID. I lost three people that were very close to me. I'm in Australia. I literally had to go to my grandparents' funeral on Zoom, and I just was not ready to play. Sometimes I think the expectation of, oh, just get through it and play is just so far-fetched. She also told us that her and Kamau are no longer working together, that it's an entirely amicable split, that Kamau was there for her in every way, emotionally, during this tough time, and that she felt that going forward, she needed a separation between her personal life and her professional life as far as a coach. Mm -hmm. Essentially, she needed somebody who was just going to show up to the courts, plan the coaching side, and for her to be able to have that separation. Right. Clearly, they're very close. They're friends. That can sort of muddy a professional working relationship, especially when things are not going well in your job. Sloan, way back, I think it was 2009, she found out her father passed away while she was at the U.S. Open. And she, at that time, decided that she wanted to play through it. And she continued. You never know how you're going to react when you're grieving. Some people choose to dive into work to uh, to distract themselves. But in tennis, if you try to distract yourself and you lose, then you're free for the rest of the week. Or, or the rest of the two weeks, right? That certainly doesn't help things. All that said, Sloan made the quarterfinals of this tournament. She strung together a few back-to-back -back matches for the first time in a long time, even beating Madison Keys. Yeah, when Sloan is even, like, so-so, Madison is in trouble. That is not a matchup she likes. The head-to-head -head is now 4-1 to one in favor of Sloan. And uh, I was so frustrated in the lead-up to this match and after this match following along on tennis Twitter, because the usual suspects were just chomping at the bit to mock either of these women, mm -hmm. regardless of the result. Sloan won, mock Madison. Madison won, mock Sloan. Right. So now that Sloan is winning, that she's opened herself up, that people feel bad about mocking her, now it's like, okay, let me direct my mocking and amusement to Madison instead. Sure, you might have wanted or expected both these women to win much more than they have in their careers so far. They both struggled with stringing together matches on a week-to-week -week basis. And I think that's contributed to a lot of folks having a kind of a side-eye, a rolling-their-eye kind of reaction to, to following these women and supporting these women. Because as we know, folks are only out here for the bandwagon with pretty much everybody. People stand people who win all the time. That's just the way it is. But in this case, at this particular time, these two women have both been through a lot. We've talked about what Sloane's been through, and Madison, has, she had COVID as well. Mm -hmm. She wasn't able to play Australia. She's been struggling for form. This match and the careers of these two women currently do not exist within a vacuum. All this is to say it's a reminder to just have a little bit more compassion toward people. Yeah, I'm sure, and I'm sure we can take that advice too. Yeah, you know, absolutely. we were we were rough on players complaining during the Australian Open quarantine period, and honestly, who knows what some of them were going through at the time? Except for Benoit Pair, <laughs> he gets no. Yeah, <laughs> it's just it's just an ongoing thing. You know, every every tournament he flops, goes to party, and then gives you this philosophical treatise about how much this blows. 
and, and it's he's always literally, he's literally playing more tournaments than than anybody right. else on tour. Like it's an option just not to do so. Anyway, somebody who's also had a string of bad luck, Amanda Nisimova was looking really good in Charleston. She was up six love four one against Shelby Rogers before suffering a leg injury and eventually losing in three sets. After the match, I you could sort of sense this this was coming. Mm. Because Amanda's done this before. Done what? Tweeted something in her feelings and then deleted it. <laughs> so when I saw this tweet come out, I I made note of it and made sure to go back and check like an hour and two later. And sure enough, it was gone. She tweeted, shit happens, but this often? Unbelievable. <laughs> right. Fair. Entirely fair. That match was absolutely wild because... Amanda was fully in control, she got injured, she was super frustrated, then she left the court, and she got dinged because she didn't go to the bathroom. It was a bathroom break, and apparently she did not go to the bathroom. And people are like, I don't well, know where, where she where went. Where did she go? <laughs> but that is not allowed, just so you know. Elsewhere this week, we're going to speed through the results this week, because that's really not what this episode is about. Uh, but in Cagliari, in Sardinia, Lorenzo Sonego beat Laszlo Gera in three sets. This is Sonego's second career title, part of this wave of Italian men. Mm-hmm. We've heard a lot about Lorenzo Musetti in the last few... Oh my god, that pronunciation. Oh, oh my god. Oh, you liked it. Oh, have you been eating some barilla? <laughs> you know, I, I watched all those commercials with Andrea Bardiani all those years ago. Who? He was a Toronto Raptor power forward Oh, oh I remember him. Yeah. <laughs> and I guess Roger has done some barilla pasta too. Indeed he has. Some haute couture pasta photos. They're actually very good. So now you're going to make me say it again and I'm going to mess it up. (laughs) We've heard a lot about Lorenzo Musetti in the last, what, half a year? And Uh, he's kind of... It was Rome in 2020 or 2019 where he had his big breakout. Point is, he's kind of overshadowed Sonego a little bit in recent times as the, the next best Italian. Well, I mean, that's Yannick Sinner. There's a lot of them. Oh, God. Berrettini, Sinner. Italian tennis is going to be lit on the men's side. (laughs) Yes. But anyway, let's not forget about Mr. Sonego. In Spain, in Marbella, Pablo Carreño Busta wins his fifth career title, beating Jaume Munar in the final. This is only Pablo's second title on clay. For those of you who believe he is a clay specialist, he is not. This was a great tournament for some Spanish young guys. Munar, of course, getting to the final. He defeated Fabio Fognini on the way. And Carlos Alcaraz, who kind of routined Casper Ruud in straight sets, which was surprising. Ruud is a top customer on, on clay. In Bogota, 19-year-old Colombian Maria Camila Osorio Serrano defeated Tamara Sedanchek to win her first title. And if you had any doubts about how happy she was about winning this title, you can look no further than the fact that she gave a 50-plus minute press conference to enthusiastic Spanish-speaking reporters afterward. (laughs) Osorio was the U.S. Open girls champ in 2019, so she didn't just come out of nowhere, but this will obviously improve her ranking uh, quite a bit. She's jumped from number 180 to 135. She is within striking distance of seeding territory at the next few Grand Slams. She left Bogota 
and went straight to Charleston 2 and took out Magdalene Lynette in her first match, who was a seeded player there. Mm -hmm. Another one of these traveling from one country to another and playing the next day business that we've been seeing. Yes. We talked about Layla winning in Mexico and then playing Miami qualifying the next day. Now Osorio is doing the same thing. Yes. Now this does take us kind of to our next point. We are going to move away from the results and talk about some other things that are going on in tennis. Daniel Medvedev tests positive for COVID-19 yesterday. He's in Monte Carlo. The tournament allowed Monaco residents to stay in their homes and all other players would be in the bubble. Monaco residents residents or Monaco <laughs> residents? Or are we just talking about people who say they're Monaco residents is, for tax purposes? Is there a difference? I have no idea. I have never been to Monaco. Uh, there are a number of tennis players and f- famous world athletes, as you know, that have, <laughs> have permanent residences in Monaco for uh, certain reasons. Tax evasion reasons. Uh, tax tax avoidance, I would say, you know, just to keep everything legal around, okay. you know, no defamation here. But anyway, some do it in the Bahamas, uh, rhymes with Cayman. Obviously, the, the Panama Papers, uh, you know, lifted the lid on this thing a few years ago. Anyway, players who have residences in Monaco were allowed to stay at their home. So Medvedev is one of those. The players who were staying at home are tested daily. And players who are outside of what is called the quote-unquote biosecure bubble are tested every four days. This is from Reuters. However, that difference in testing implies that there's greater risk associated with the players who are staying off-site in their own homes, right? Of course. That's what that's saying. Yeah. Yet, they come, they come to site and then practice with players who are in the biosecure bubble. So when this news broke last night, a lot of folks immediately thought of that practice that Medvedev had with Nadal a couple days ago. Yeah. Nadal and his team have so far tested negative. The tournament said that his next test is scheduled for three days from now, which is straight. I mean, that's their protocol that they set up. But he may or may not be a close contact with someone who is mm-hmm. positive for COVID-19. So you would think they might test a little more frequently than that for him. At least the players, if you're contact tracing, who've had the most exposure to Medvedev, at least those players should then be moved into a different category of testing. So uh, the tournament has stayed pretty mum about what's going on with Rafa, other than he is negative and they're just taking it day by day. This is obviously a, a massive wrinkle in the clay season. Medvedev actually just talked about this week how much he hates playing on clay. Uh, Unfortunately, now he does not have a choice. He's had to pull out of Monte Carlo. This puts into perspective just how lucky tennis has been in recent months. Since Australia, it was clear to me that these tournaments and the tours, to be frank, like I don't want to lay this all on the tournaments because they're, they're trying to survive in a pandemic too, right? But where is the connectivity, the continuity, the uniformity between tournaments and procedures and protocols? Like you're going from one place that has one set of rules to another place that has maybe far less rules to somewhere else that has far stricter rules. Mm -hmm. And it seems that in most countries, the, the tours are deferring to the country or the municipality to sort of guide what the health 
protocol should be. Mm-hmm. But you're bringing shit from other places, right. essentially. I mean, and you can always be more strict than what the public health authorities <laughs> say you have to be. Yeah. Right. And you when, can't be less, but you can be more. And when folks are out here <laughs> complaining about the lack of freedom, about being in quarantine jail, about not wanting to play the rest of the season if it's going to be like this, we need more freedom. Now we see what can happen if more freedom is given. This is not to say that Medvedev was out here gallivanting, doing all things that he shouldn't have been doing. I haven't been following... Wait, wait, wait. I haven't been following him on social media like I know a lot of folks have been doing. A lot of folks have been Nancy drawing the shit (laughs) out of players' whereabouts and what they're doing once they've lost at tournaments, etc. I don't know that about Medvedev, but I'm saying we know now a year into this, that players cannot be trusted to uniformly behave in a way that's going to make rule relaxation a viable way of dealing with this. Right. Aside from the the Adria tour, the biggest outbreak we saw in tennis was at the U.S. Open. Benoit Paire was patient zero, and some of his friends were ejected from the tournament because they were determined to be close contacts with him. One of them was one of the best doubles players in the world, Christina Mladenovic, who had a good chance to win. But for the most part, tennis has been lucky. And this Medvedev example, for me, I'm I'm not looking at it from a micro perspective about what was he doing, where was mm. he. I don't care about that. Like, I am shifting the blame and looking at the forest for the trees here. Like, is it a biosecure bubble if players from home are coming into the bubble and playing with players who have been living in the bubble, right? Like, what are they doing at home? I don't know. Does the ATB know? And we also know that there are players who were doing everything they wanted and then some in Miami once they lost. Right, and not saying that Medvedev is one of those people, but this is the problem with, like, don't call it a bubble if you can't guarantee that it is one. Caitlin Thompson from Racket Magazine has a recurring column in Eurosport now, This week, she wrote recommending that tennis pick up this vaccine passport thing. And her recommendation was that all players and all players' teams should be vaccinated in order to travel to tournaments. And the so-called vaccine passport is a way to do this. Now, I've seen some opinions recently saying, let's pump the brakes on the vaccine passport language and let's call it a vaccine record or something a little less... Uh, Not that it's inflammatory, but something a little more neutral. And I think part of the problem here is that vaccine passport just sounds like, oh, that's another document by which the government is going to track me. You know, it seems like you're divulging very personal information. But the thing is, we we all have immunization records, right? And before we travel to some countries, or of course immigrate to some countries, we have to prove those things. Before we go to public school, we have to prove that we're immunized against certain things. This is a totally normal part of our lives, and it's been that way for more than a half century. COVID is just one more thing we're being immunized against. Now, the issue here is that, is it feasible for all players and their teams to be vaccinated? Although some tournaments are offering vaccinations on site. It happened this week at the Volvo car open. The Johnson & Johnson vaccine was made available to any player who wanted it once they were out of the tournament. Single-shot vaccine, so they don't have to worry about coming back to the same spot three weeks, what is it, three weeks later to get dose two. Right. 
So although some tournaments are doing this, not everyone has the same access to vaccines. If you haven't traveled to these tournaments that are making it available, if your team isn't there, based on what country a player comes from, the access is really inequitable. Mm-hmm. And happening in the U.S. now, where the vaccine is pretty much widely available to anybody who wants it, the Volvo Car one being able to do this last week didn't really create uh, a sense of unfairness with the local public. Do you know what I mean? Like, oh, if, right, because if the, the public was, there is getting vaccinated. Yeah, everybody in this country, more or less, compared to anywhere else in the world, has the best chance of getting the vaccine. Mm. It's widely available. However, if the Rogers Cup were happening... Last week in Canada, well, it's no longer the Rogers Cup, is it? It's called, it's called something else. The oh, National Bank Open or whatever. something. The Canadian Open. Yeah. <laughs> if that were happening last week and they were like, hey, guess what? All you tennis players, if you want Johnson & Johnson, just just come right up. That yeah, would have pu- There's more where that came that from. That would have caused a huge problem right. in Canada. Because we're, you know, we're having trouble getting even seniors to their pharmacies or hospitals to get vaccinated. So in Canada, in most countries in Europe, the the threshold for being eligible for getting the vaccine is 60 and over still. We're down right. to, I think, 55 55, here. but then you're on waiting lists. Yeah. But anyway. The, the point, point is, at this time, it's a bit much to say that tennis players should be able to jump the line ahead of all their countrymen and women in their respective countries to get a vaccine And for what? Yeah, in theory, I like the idea, but we have to ensure that all players and their teams have equal access, or at least reasonable access to getting vaccinated, Mm -hmm. which I think it may be possible through the tennis authorities, but I want to see if we can get there. Mm -hmm. This might be something that's, I don't think that this is something that should be discounted. It's something that's probably, to my mind, very feasible a little bit later on. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I think a lot of folks are still shook or reshook by the slow pace of of remedying this pandemic you know yeah, like i don't yeah. think we we should be prioritizing tennis players at the moment a little bit of a side note diversion here cuz i don't really know how it fits into the agenda since monte carlo is happening now and we're not really covering those matches but stefano sitsipas today like, my God, Arno Gaba again. Oh, it was him again? It was him again. Today, Tsitsipas said, you're a disgrace. Go back to futures. Where you belong. Yeah. Just crazy. Like, people talk crazy to umpires. Like, this was a doubles <laughs> match that he was playing with his brother. This was not... Oh, Lord. <laughs> this was not in any way an important moment in Stefanos's career. Mm-hmm. You know, that reminds me, I was doing some reading today on Canadian human, human rights law for something else, and nepotism is actually protected under the Human Rights Code. Meaning what? It's not a grounds for discrimination. So if you hire your son in favor of another qualified candidate, you're not violating anyone's human rights. Oh. Or if you, you know, get your brother a wild card. Mm. It just, it reminded me. This is the man who had his eye plunked out by... Denis Shapovalov in Davis Cup a few years ago. A point of information. The eyeball was okay. Jared Donaldson got into it with him a couple years ago Supervisor. in Monte Carlo. Supervisor. Just a couple weeks ago, Vashik Pospisil went on an almighty rant about the PTPA business and the meeting the day before, yelling at Gaba on the changeover. 
I just, you know, Stephanos has this reputation as this innocent philosopher that folks want to coddle. I mean, they want to coddle all of their ATP lovies, mm. right? They're lovey doveys. Yeah, I mean, the protect thing, and nurture them. Like Stephanos may be very kind and generous in some scenarios, but he behaved really badly here. Arnogaba deserves hazard pay or something, a promotion. I mean, <laughs> it's just crazy when it gets so personal with the umpire. This past week in Charleston, we got further insight into the personality of Miss Alize Cornet. She's just always revealing layers. Steve Weissman from Tennis Channel told her during their interview, this and this was, was news to her. Yeah, this was like a, a sit-down TV segment. Yeah, that Roland Garros would most likely be pushing back their tournament by one week. And before he even finished the sentence, she was like, no, no, no. no. So what she said is, oh, God, well, it stays between us, but our sports minister is a disaster. Stays between us and the millions of folks that are going to see. <laughs> you are on a televised interview, <laughs> which is hilarious. She said, I have nothing against her, but she only takes bad decisions for sport. And she went on, it's a pretty selfish decision, to be honest. What we're referring to here is the decision by the French Federation to push back the French Open by one week. And the reason this is happening is because France recently went on a nationwide lockdown. The president anticipates that it will be lifted in mid-May. This is to accommodate Roland Garros and allow it to go on as planned just a week later. The sports minister, Roxana Maracineanu, which is a Romanian name, I hope I pronounced it like close, she made headlines this week saying that they would most likely be postponing the tournament. Then it happened, the French Federation made their announcement, and very swiftly after the other Grand Slams and the Tours said, hey, this is what's happening, and we're in support of it. Because mm -hmm. <laughs> initially, folks were wondering, are we going to have a repeat of last year where the French Federation just makes a decision that affects the rest of the tennis calendar, albeit just by one week in, in this instance, but affecting it nonetheless without the input of any of the other governing bodies, right. any of the other six. Because we know last time Roland Garros chose its own spot on the calendar in September, which conflicted with Labor Cup. So clearly they did not consult with the ATP about that. This year, the seven governing bodies of tennis have responded with a united front that we know about it, we're fine with it, and we support it. What this means is that one week of the grass season will be omitted, won't be played, and we're back to the previous schedule of just having two weeks in between the French Open and Wimbledon. Right. Alizé, when she said that this is a selfish decision, she was talking about the calendar that's going to be disrupted and the other tournaments that are being affected because of the decision. Now, other tournaments can, of course, continue to go on during Roland Garros, especially during the second week where many people will be available. The... ATP just announced a new tournament in Parma, Italy for the week before Roland Garros to try to pump up the calendar again. Mm -hmm. Right, but some of those grass tournaments are run by the LTA. Right. So those ones have been decidedly axed for this year. Yes. But others can pop up. And so we have France and the UK fighting as they have for uh, millennia. This next segment, we're going to deal with a cultural moment that's happening in the United States right now that is related to tennis in that there's a push to restrict transgender women's involvement in sport. 
by various entities, one of them spearheaded by Martina Navratilova. Yes. So if you've been paying attention to Martina in the past two or three years, she's been vocal about trans people's participation in sport, more specifically trans women's participation in women's sport. She's been called a lot of things, and we're not here to call her any of those things, but this is a topic that people in tennis are simply not talking about. It's being talked about elsewhere. You know, this is a towering figure, a goat, one of the pioneers of Western LGBTQ activism. Somebody who has a lot of clout to speak to this issue because of her trailblazing career as an out proud lesbian pioneer Mm -hmm. in tennis. But her activism in this arena has been talked about very, very minimally in the world of tennis. Why this is relevant now is that over the past few months, there's been a spate of bills and legislation across many states, upwards of 20 states in the U.S., but these are mostly aimed at regulating how trans kids and trans people participate in sport. And Martina Navratilova's 2019 op-ed in the Washington Post has been cited in every single one of these 20 bills aimed at regulating how trans people participate in sport. Martina Navratilova's words, in every single bill. So when she says that my aim and my words are not intended to exclude trans athletes from anything, we know that one, they have been taken to do so. She has lost all control of that. So her intent doesn't matter anymore in this instance. The website Them recently wrote a story about how most of these bills have been written or written with the guidance of this group called Alliance Defending Freedom, which the Southern Poverty Law Center has identified as a hate group, which Human Rights Campaign says is the largest anti-LGBTQ hate group in the U.S. This group, Alliance Defending Freedom, has helped write these bills. They were also behind the so-called bathroom bills a few years ago. They had a hand in the wedding cake bills. Do you remember that? Mm -hmm. They even were part of the same-sex marriage legislation referendums that were introduced in the early 2000s across the U.S. Some of these bills are being called the Fairness in Women's Sport Act, Save Women's Sport Act, as well as the Gender Integrity Reinforcement Legislation, which was rolled out in Arkansas. Now, when this reporter at them, Nico Lang, uncovered that a lot of these bills were being written by this ADF, this LGBT hate group. It made a lot of sense because they are, they're a sort of a legal resource for legislators. These groups can actually write legislation. A lot of the logic and language is very similar across different states. A lot of the names of the bills are the same. Clearly, they had help, and this is kind of a coordinated effort. Now, the fact that they cite a 2019 op-ed co-written by Martina Navratilova, is very concerning because it's a strange bedfellow situation. Even if she doesn't want to be lumped into these people, her words have been assumed to be supportive of these people. So this comes among a wave of similar bills. Some of them are aimed at sports, and you have probably heard of the ones that are aimed at healthcare. There are many bills across the United States that have proposed banning gender-affirming healthcare to people under the age of 18. Now, they want you to think that this is, like, really scary shit. This bans things like counseling. This bans all sort of healthcare that falls under the umbrella of gender-affirming to minors. In New Hampshire and Texas, they're trying to expand the definition of child abuse. 
Uh, in South Carolina, it's called, quote, Child Compassion and Protection. And so you can see it's a, a coordinated effort to get legislation through these state houses about trans participation in sport, but also the ability of children who are questioning their gender identity to get health care, counseling, any sort of medical care covered. This much-cited op-ed that we've mentioned a few times was written in 2019, published in the Washington Post, co-written by Martina Sonia Richards-Ross, who is a famous U.S. track star, and Dorian Coleman. And the idea was to expand the Civil Rights Act to ban discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation everywhere except sports. This was done because the Supreme Court was expected to take up this case in which they had to rule on Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. They argued that the Equality Act would violate Title IX if it allowed trans athletes to compete based on their gender identity, arguing that this would harm, quote, girls and women, which they really mean cis women. Mm -hmm. Throughout this, I want to talk about the language that's being used, the rhetorical strategies, because in that op-ed, they refused to use the word cis women. They only spoke of girls and women versus trans girls and trans women. For those who may not know, can you explain what a cisgendered woman is? Yes, someone who is cisgender, this means that their identity and their gender corresponds with their sex at birth. So we are both cis men. We were assigned male at birth, and our gender identity, as we've grown into adulthood, has matched that. Now, cis is a very common terminology used now to distinguish between trans people and people whose birth sex and gender identity match, right? And so the refusal to use this is deliberately confusing because this conflicts with the accepted terminology and which Martina herself has acknowledged that trans women are women. They that, are women. Yes. If you are a trans woman, I will refer to you as she. So the, the mixing up of this terminology is deliberately confusing. No, I know what you mean, but maybe expand a little bit about why not using or refusing to use cis makes it confusing. Mm -hmm. Right. I say it's confusing because if you accept that trans girls are girls, then when you refer to someone as a girl, who are you speaking about? Cis and trans girls or only cis girls? And so this is what gets muddled in this op-ed, right? Now, in the same year, Martina wrote an op-ed for the Times of London that was very inflammatory. We talked about this several times on the show back in early 2019, around the time of the Miami tournament. In that op-ed, she was quoted as saying, you can't just proclaim yourself a female and be able to compete against a woman. There must be some standards, and having a penis and competing as a woman would not fit that standard. She goes on to say, quote, a man can decide to be female take hormones if required by whatever sporting organization is concerned, win everything in sight, and perhaps earn a small fortune, and then reverse his decision and go back to making babies if he, if he so desires. It's insane and it's cheating. I'm happy to address a transgender woman in whatever form she prefers, but I would not be happy to compete against her. It would not be fair. She got a lot of flack for this essay. She got a lot of support for it as well, but she did go on to apologize and write another essay that uh, clarified a few points, but also cleaned up the language. She's using crass, insensitive language. She's saying, you know, a man can decide to be female and then go back to being a man, calls this woman by the wrong pronoun deliberately, says pronouns are preferred 
when they're not really preferred. One of the reasons why transgender people are not taken seriously is because a lot of folks, and this plays into that, a lot of folks feel that it is a phase, that it is something that can be changed at any given time. Or that it's a decision taken lightly, mm-hmm. that, that Jimmy Connors could have put on a dress and competed against Martino. That's not how this works. And she knows that because the NCAA and the IOC had specific rules in place for how trans women would be allowed to compete in their sports. She knew that. That had been in place for a decade when she wrote this. So she apologized. But in the same year, you know, she teams up with Sonny Richards-Ross and Dorian Coleman to write this very legalistic essay about why the Equality Act should be proposed in this way and not that other way. It's a very interesting legal argument to me as a lay person. The Civil Rights Act provides protections for people based on sex in things like employment, housing, public accommodation, but it leaves out sports. Title IX is the exception, that there can and should be segregation between men and women. And this applies to high school, college, professional, competitive sport. The argument now by Martina and her colleagues, the Women's Sport Policy Working Group is what it's called, mm, is that Title IX should be invoked again in this so far not passed Equality Act. Now, how we got here is that the Supreme Court did hear that case in 2020. This is a landmark, one of the most important rulings in queer history in the United States, Bostock v. Clayton County. The Supreme Court ruled that discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity is discrimination based on sex defined by the Civil Rights Act, and therefore Title VII applies. Essentially, the court read in sexual orientation and gender identity into the definition of sex. When you say read in, you mean they interpret it. Exactly. And it's now law slash fact. Yes. No longer an inference. This is what's going to be applied as a law of the land. Theoretically, Mm -hmm. yeah. And guess who was the majority opinion on that? Trump appointee Neil Gorsuch. And it's not because he is such a champion of LGBTQ rights. It's because he interpreted this based on the language of the original statute, saying that the word sex would encompass these other forms of identity. So the Supreme Court ruled that in 2020. When Joe Biden became president, he almost immediately issued this executive order saying that he would affirm the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock and that sexual orientation and gender identity would be essentially protected groups under the Civil Rights Act. Now, how is it that the Women's Sport Policy Working Group are trying to use Title IX to upend this? So this is a group of... There are six people on the working group, including Martina Navratilova, some Olympians, Dorian Coleman, who had co-written that op-ed with her, and they've put together a bunch of literature and would like to propose to President Biden that he go ahead with all aspects of the Equality Act except for how it applies to sports. So they want to make recommendations and regulations about how trans women, in particular, are allowed to participate in sport. So they're in effect saying because... Title IX is precedent that we can have separation, we can have that wedge within the general equality of the law. Yeah, they're saying Title IX is already there. Title IX already does that. It allows this sort of discriminative segregation between men and women to protect women's rights. Why not do that with trans people as well? So their mission is, quote, to protect girls and women's competitive sport 
for biological females while accommodating trans girls and trans women through evidence-based respectful criteria. And much of the language on the website casts these, these two opposing forces, right? One force is the transphobic, we don't want trans people to participate in any way, versus the people, I suppose, on the left who want full participation from trans people with no regulation. And, and they so claim those that are they're in the middle. Exactly. So those are cast as like equally crazy fringes. They claim that they're here to protect women's sport. That's one of their, their mantras. And like I said earlier, one of the, the names of the bills to restrict trans youth participation in sport is called the Save Women's Sport Act. And so to be very clear, these bills are not being written in consultation with <laughs> Martina or any of these people, but they share some of the same language and logic. On their website, they have listed the six original founders of this working group. They are uh, Donna Deverona, an Olympian, Martina Navratilova, Donna Lopiano, Nancy Hogshead Makar, Tracy Sunlin, and Dorian Coleman. And then below that, they have a list of quote-unquote supporters. Other champion athletes and supporters of the Congressional Initiative include... And then you have a, a string of headshots and a brief synopsis of what they've accomplished. There's, on the face of it, a, a, a wide cross-section of folks. There are black athletes. There are lesbian athletes. There's a transgender cross-country runner. There's a transgender former elite marathoner. And so you go through this list and you, you see some names, and some of them are very familiar. There's Greg Luganis. There's Edwin Moses who is a big-time track star in his day. There is Diana Nyad, one who made history as one of the greatest ever long-distance swimmers. There is Renee Richards, whom I thought had retired from public life. I'm, I'm being serious. I, I mm-hmm. thought that that had happened. Sanya Richards-Ross is there. And then you'll notice two very familiar faces who, whose appearance there is actually quite very disappointing to us. Chris Everett. And Pam Shriver. Yeah. Now their colleague, Billie Jean King, has distanced herself from this completely. Mm-hmm. Three of the members of this working group are former affiliates or workers of the Women's Sport Foundation, which Billie Jean King founded yeah. in, in the 70s. Billie Jean They've King. They've since left the organization, and she and the Women's Sports Foundation are opposed to this. Yeah, she's made it very clear where she falls on this issue. There's a lot of emphasis on this being evidence-based being driven by science, but on the working group, there are no scientists. There are no trans people. They were asked, did you consult with leading scientists on this issue? Did you consult with trans advocacy groups? And all they got back was yes, but they would only participate off the record. So they're not cited in this very extensive literature that they give. What I have a problem with is that there is one one peer-reviewed scientific article cited by this working group. Only one. They've cast themselves as the people who believe in science. And so the people who don't agree with them are necessarily people who are anti-science, right? This is like the pro-choice, anti-choice thing. You're lobbying the president of the United States. What are you bringing to the table as evidence 
to justify this. Mm. And it turns out not much. Well, so there was one peer-reviewed study in 2020 that looked at trans women based on how long they've been under testosterone suppression therapy and how their performance in elite sport compared to cis women. And so the result of this study was that after a year, they were still slightly better than cis women. And so the recommendation was that testosterone suppression therapy lasts longer than one year. So one year has been the standard in a lot of professional sporting organizations. This is one study. One study. Think about the resistance to taking vaccines based on insufficient study mm. just I mean, this past year. This mu- I'm not a scientist. This could have been a very good study. It could have been, but you you need a multitude of studies to be able to make cross-sectional decisions that are going to affect so many people's lives. So the, the main part of their recommendation is that they create categories in which people can participate. So if you are a trans woman who never experienced what they call male puberty, you may participate without exception. You can participate in head-to-head sports, in competitive women's sports. Meaning if you started hormone therapy before you went through puberty. Mm -hmm. Now remember that a lot of the bills that are being passed into law in the U.S. are preventing that very reality from happening. So young people will not be allowed to go under hormone therapy in order to not experience what they call, quote, male puberty. So think on that for a second. Puberty that is an undefinable period, really. Mm-hmm. happens at varying stages of life from person to person. How do you keep full track of that? Like, what is the age mm-hmm. that you're going to say, well, you, need, you, you, this young boy who maybe has developed at a quicker rate than Tommy down the street, you're both 10 years old, but you've entered puberty before, who's going to decide? At, at what stage? If he qualifies. Oh, under this, this this rule. People go through puberty at different paces and in different ways, right? Mm-hmm. So this would require having someone determine whether they went through enough puberty mm-hmm. to qualify as... I imagine it would require a lot of poking and prodding of a young prepubescent boy by some medical quote-unquote expert mm-hmm. to then determine what is what. And the thing is, like, we, we've seen this with professional athletes. We've seen this with Castro Semenya. We cannot guarantee that athletes will be treated with dignity and won't be traumatized by these examinations, these determinations. Now, the NCAA, on the other hand, says there is no convincing evidence that the beneficial effects of male puberty cannot be mitigated by testosterone suppression later in life. Mm -hmm. This is something that's kind of still up in the air. We simply do not have enough evidence. We have this one peer-reviewed article the NCAA cites a bunch of science. So we have science that conflicts the other science. The Women's Sport Policy Working Group have come up with this chart to kind of explain where they are at. So like you mentioned, if an athlete hasn't experienced any stage of puberty, meaning they have gone through hormone treatment before they hit puberty, then they're able, under this this guideline, to participate in all level of women's sport throughout their lifetime. This chart that they've created to explain their position, it's quite confusing. (laughs) Let me chime in. The the real issue here is if you are a trans woman who experienced, quote unquote, male puberty, some or all, and you're on hormones, and you've mitigated your legacy advantage, you can compete 
with the rules consistent with the NCAA or the IOC. No, pardon me. So what is what does this mean? Here, but what the fuck is a legacy advantage? What? See, this is what I don't understand. I feel like this is some seriously flowery language to label something that's really heinous. Well, because okay, if you are on testosterone suppression for a year, what happens if you have not mitigated your legacy advantage, as they call it? What if you've done everything by the books, as the NCAA prescribes, but your legacy advantage remains intact? As determined by whom? By whom, right. And the science that they cite, they're arguing that that legacy advantage from puberty doesn't go away for a lot of people. So who is this including and who is it excluding? I don't get it. My reading of this is that in order for you to play and participate in women's sport unchecked, if you will, based on these recommendations, you need to have started hormone therapy before puberty and continue on hormone therapy throughout your lifetime in sport. And even then, there's no guarantee that you will meet their criteria because there's no guarantee that you'd have quote-unquote mitigated your legacy advantage. Mm -hmm. This legacy advantage has only been, has only shown up in one peer-reviewed scientific article, at least as they cite, the NCAA cites a bunch, and they say that the differences between trans women and cis women are not larger than the variation within the advantages of cis women, right? Women whose identity matches their sex given at birth. I think I can speak for you here is that our concern with this, what problem is being solved here? This feels like... So much work has been put into this to protect whom from from what exactly the the thing is like Title IX at the time in the early seventies addressed a real demonstrable inequity between men and women's participation in sports that still exists. Yes, that Title IX has done a ton to ameliorate, but we it, it's just, still there. We just saw in the last two weeks how differently the NCAA women's basketball teams were treated yeah. as compared to the, the men's basketball right. teams. And that was all over social media. They fall under that jurisdiction mm-hmm. of Title that's, IX. That's some almost 50 years on mm. from the passage of Title IX. And we're, we're still having those big public moments of how inequity is still deeply embedded within the collegiate athletic system. Right. So those were real evidence-based inequalities. My issue with this is that the inequality posed by trans women participating in sport is thus far theoretical. It hasn't been a threat based on evidence. There are not trans women competing in women's sport on a large scale and threatening the dominance of cis women in their own sports. It is simply not happening. Only one transgender athlete has participated in the Olympic Games since they were allowed to compete in the Olympics. Only one. The NCAA has policies itself on its books. They have largely uncontroversial policy on its books to support the the equal rights and inclusion and participation of trans athletes within the collegiate setup. Mm-hmm. That's theirs. It's there at the college level in the United States. It's there at the Olympic level. But apparently, more needs to be done. So in the NCAA, trans women have been allowed to participate with people of the same gender identity since 2011. You know, without trans women taking over the sport in any way, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, right, there's been no influx. The fear among advocates 
of this women's sports policy working group is that now that trans people are starting to feel recognized as human beings, and I'm editorializing here, is that they will be empowered to participate in sports. Because thus far, we haven't seen that. Like the fear that a trans athlete is going to come up, a transgendered woman is going to perhaps enter professional tennis and just destroy all the records and be an unfair opponent to the cisgendered woman on tour. That hasn't happened. From my perspective, advocates on that side have created this sort of artificial menace. It happened to us, right? Like gay people were the so-called lavender menace. And there were so many myths created about us. We were going to be influencing children. We were going to be fiddling with children. We were communists. You know, we were tied with the red menace, which Martina Navratilova knows intimately because she was tarred in a similar way during the 1980s. To this day, something that we're still responsible for natural disasters, hurricanes and earthquakes and the like. Luckily, we can laugh those people out the room now. But for decades, this type of thinking applied to us. Right. And so this is the discourse, right? This language that was created and reproduced around queer people, this has real material effects. It creates legislation against us. It creates and it helps to to worsen the emotional turmoil for young queer kids, and in this case, young transgender kids, to then kill themselves. It's not Mm -hmm. just other people killing trans people. It's transgender youth having the highest rate of suicide by far of any group in the United States. And so what what I want to make clear here is the connection between these sort of bills, these recommendations, and similar laws that are being passed in many states that are criminalizing gender-affirming healthcare for trans kids. So perhaps some of the healthcare, counseling psychology services that help bring trans kids away from the drive to die by suicide is concurrently being banned, mm-hmm. right? So th- the Women's Sports Policy Working Group may not want to be associated with that movement, and but they, they are. And they explicitly... Because it's happening at the same time and they're using similar language. They absolutely don't want that to happen. No, right? of course. As a stated like, goal of what they're doing. They probably don't believe they're part of this movement, but history will view them and the present is viewing them as part of the same movement. And so we can see throughout history that sometimes... Feminists have built coalitions with the extreme Christian right for things like pornography and sex work criminalization. These are strange bedfellows, and they probably don't agree on anything but that one issue. I don't want to be in a coalition with people who think I'm less than human, even if it's for a goal that is really important. And so this is what's happening again, in my opinion. You've said previously that this Women's Sport Policy Working Group and Martina Navratilova even if this isn't their intent, they're welcoming strange bedfellows. While Martina has in the past, and in the very, very recent past, used language that is inflammatory and might be construed as mocking, the language here on this website has veered toward the respectable. But Sure, but in their press conference launching this initiative, it was reported that members of that, if you want to call them the original six on that panel, still did not have a grasp on the proper terminology to be using, saying things like A-trans, using Um, trans as a noun. Mixing up what is biological sex versus gender versus cis. Mm. Things that they should have down because they've been supposedly learning about the stuff for two years already. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about this as uh, a gay kid who really was 
to this day, I feel I, I could have done more in sport as a child. Like, I played mm. cricket all throughout high school, but the closet was always something that prevented my belief in myself from going as far as I could. Why is it that the number of out athletes or the number of known queer athletes at professional or elite level or even in college sport is so vastly diminished from what we know to be the existence of queer people in regular society, right? At, there, is, there is a weeding out of queer people in sport as they, as they get older, for whatever reason. Maybe you don't feel like the locker room is a welcoming place. Maybe the, the locker room, as it did for both of us, terrified us. Mm. And but, this is more common for young men, yes. obviously. Right. But I'm saying sport historically has not been a welcoming place for queer youth. And to think that there are all these young boys who are going to transition into young women and then take over the world of sport and replace and diminish the achievements of women in sport, it's beyond sinister and it's cruel. It's designed to have young kids, if this is implemented, to have young kids poked and prodded, to have their identities questioned their entire lives. Like you claim you're protecting women, but you're really alienating a large swath, a potential swath of your queer brethren and sistren from ever gaining access to sport. Title IX addressed a serious inequity, as we said, but this amendment to the Equality Act addresses a hypothetical threat that has not happened. And so those supposed mitigating factors, like getting hormone suppression as a child, those are becoming swiftly illegal across the United States. And the people who are making that illegal are using the literal words of Martina Navratilova to back up their argument. And this is probably not what she intended, but this is the reality, right? So like you have a generation of trans children or children who are questioning their gender identities being spoken about in a public forum and in a really dehumanizing way, people making legislation, regulating their bodies, taking away their lifelines, their healthcare, and also restricting their participation in sports. How many kids know that they want to try a sport before they hit puberty? You know, I wanted to talk about this because I feel like we're in a really difficult place as an LGBTQ community, like in my experience. Over the past few years, same-sex marriage has been legalized in many, many Western countries, in the US and the UK. So many of us have said, well, that's it. I'm good. White gay men are allowed to live a relatively protected life based on where we were even 15, 20 years ago, right? Our lives can go on as normal. And there are, there have always been these factions within the queer community that have differing goals. And if you're someone whose goal was assimilation, like, you're pretty good. My fear is that there are a lot of people in our community who don't believe that trans people are part of our community. They believe our community is defined by who you're attracted to. And trans people supposedly are defined by their gender identity. And there are a lot of people who don't think that's compatible. And that makes me really sad and angry for where this discussion is going. 
I don't know how to sum it up. I feel like this conversation is a beginning because it's really complicated and I think it's very clear that we are some of the biggest supporters of women's sport. Who, you and me? <laughs> yeah, like we've dedicated the past six, seven years to bigging up women's tennis. Mm-hmm. Like we care so fundamentally about women's tennis. And that's not to say like we care more than other people, but I understand that you may not think we have a dog in this fight because we're men or we don't, you don't feel like we have a, a right to speak on this, but I feel like trans people are part of my community. There's there, there's a history of the L, the G and the B not being there, looking out for, or feeling like the T is any of their interest. Yeah. This is in some ways restorative work for us. I know like I've, failed in the past in how i've mm-hmm. we've learned we've made yeah. mistakes we've learned um we're still learning i just i remember how i felt in 2004 when that like wave of same-sex marriage bans went across the u.s from carl rove mm-hmm. and i felt like nothing would ever get better you know that we were doomed and you see like the same waves for trans people now that my rights are secured as a white cis gay man so many people's aren't right and those those gains are reversible and so i just find it disturbing that this working group is making noise alongside of a wave of anti-trans legislation across the u.s some of which they agree with some of which they don't and unfortunately for them they will be lumped in to legislation that they have nothing to do with. Well, in Martina's case, she does have something to do with, and that's something she has to own. The thing is, they've they've provided the rhetorical structure, yeah. the logical structure to a lot of this. I can also see how some folks might be drawn in to this movement. You label it something official like the Women's Sport Policy Working Group. You use the right language. You're able to frame it in a certain way. And... I can see how folks can be brought along with this. Mm-hmm. This is very a easily. very, very effective language. Mm-hmm. And so there's a balance between that and then a balance between thinking that folks know what they're doing by making these changes and that it's even more sinister for the folks mm. who are orchestrating it. Listen, there are no trans people on this working group. There are no scientists. And for me, the, the lengths that have been gone to in this effort to quote unquote fix a problem that to date doesn't exist knowing that this is going to create so much emotional turmoil for young kids who already have more than enough on their plate in these heightened political times it's wild to me and let me tell you even among trump supporters this is not a big issue right <laughs> All across the United States. Like anti-queer sentiment, even anti-trans sentiment. An Ipsos poll recently asked a cross-section of Americans, do you agree with President Biden's executive order on the Civil Rights Act, on the inclusion of sexual orientation and gender identity? And 83% of people said yes in the United States of America. There, these this working group is playing to a very small audience that will impact so many mm. unnecessarily. And for me, 
the net effect of that as someone who isn't trans but who grew up gay and and navigated the closet in my teen years i have some insight into what that turmoil is like and that is just unnecessarily cruel so this conversation i want to uh, i want to be a start because i there are so many things that we didn't cover there's so many things that we're still learning uh, so this is the beginning you know we've talked about this many times on the show especially since 2019 and we've learned a lot since then. Well, that was um, <laughs> you know, a, heavy, a heavy segment. We were going to talk about RuPaul's Drag Race and babies and all we'll, this we'll stuff. We'll leave that and, for the next episode. Yeah. But there's one thing I will say and shout out before we end the episode. If you haven't yet listened to Racket Podcast's latest episode with the Venus Williams, where she is so relaxed... And gives us so many nuggets. You learn things about Venus that you never knew before. You learn how much she values her WTA health insurance. <laughs> <laughs> You'll hear about what she really feels about pre-match interviews. Um, As if that wasn't clear already. Oh no, but she made it very <laughs> clear. <laughs> very clear. To the woman who does some of those pre-match yep. interviews. <laughs> Renee was like, you know, I, I need to ask this because I, I do this all the time. And you're like, truly, you're the worst pre-match interview. <laughs> and she just went off. She's like, well, and this is this is why, this is why, this is why, this is why, and what of it. I don't give a damn. <laughs> yeah, so check that out. Uh, you know, I don't listen to podcasts. So if I'm telling you, if I'm recommending something to you, then, you know, it must be mm. worth your time. Thank you for listening. My name is Jonathan. You can, you can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. The podcast is at The Body Serve on Instagram and Twitter. If you've been meaning to leave us a review and just haven't gotten around to it, that's understandable. But please rectify that. We'd greatly <laughs> appreciate it. <laughs> Thank you to everybody who's already given us a review. It's one of the, the tangible ways that you can help build the profile of the show, help us reach more people. Thanks for listening. Till next time.